Welcome back once again to the podcast for cultural reformation. This podcast is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, and we're also hosted on the Rebel Alliance Media Network. And if you haven't had a chance to go and check out the Rebels, uh, do yourselves a favor. You and your entire family will be blessed, uh, all the way down to your small children. There are loads of resources there for young and old, and I would encourage you to go and check them out at rebelalliancemedia.com. So today we're back with the second part of this interview with Joe Boot, and this is the conclusion of our conversation on government. And in light of the fact that Christ is king over all the nations, over all the universe and the cosmos, Joe's coming today with some advice, some counsel, some biblical wisdom for Christians in politics, as well as answering questions about how private citizens pursue and uphold a godly view of the political task. We're going to see that the state, as a God-given and God-ordained sphere, has its own unique God-given nature, and that that nature is coercive. That's by design. But when the state goes into areas where it doesn't belong, it can't help but bring that same coercive nature into, into these other spheres. On the contrary, when each sphere is functioning in its proper way, the natural result is the growth of godly freedom and godly flourishing. So stick around and hear more about that from Joe Boot today. So this is a, this is a bit of a hypothetical, although I know that this question, this scenario has actually come up uh, more than once or twice, but... What would you, like, as, as a pastor, as a, a Christian apologist, philosopher, how would you counsel a, uh, a young Christian who comes to you and says, I'm thinking of a career in politics? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, uh, it's very important in our current generation, uh, our current era, actually, that we emphasize both the value and the importance of that ministry, mm-hmm. right? It is mm-hmm. a ministry. Yeah, yeah. It's a legitimate office. It's it's, it's a legitimate a... office, and it's something that we need to recognize is just as important in serving the kingdom of God as being a minister in the life of the church. It's a different kind of ministry. It's a different jurisdiction, but it is a an important, legitimate, and actually an an, an honourable calling mm-hmm. to step into a political ministry to be a to be a civil servant um, and uh, to seek to honor God in the public legal space I when you asked me that question I was immediately reminded of William Wilberforce um, right. in the 18th century yeah. when he comes to faith in Christ and is very passionate about the Lord uh, Wilberforce certainly recognized today as uh, not just a, an amazing social reformer, but somebody who was one of the founders of modern evangelicalism. Yeah. And he, like many in our own time, you know, if you become passionate about the the, the Lord and his work and his kingdom, the, the immediate thought is to think, ah, so if I really want to serve God, I need to become a, a pastor. I need to become a priest. I need to become a minister in the church institute. And Wilberforce was having the same thought, mm-hmm. right? He thought, well, maybe I, you know, if I really want to serve God, I need to do that. And actually, it was John Newton, who was the famous uh, writer of that beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace, who was himself uh, a, a convert from a dissolute life. He was a slave trader. Yeah. 
uh, Wilberforce, because of a family connection, knew John Newton and went to seek counsel from him. He was a uh, priest of a parish in, in London. And Newton had the vision and the foresight to recognize that Wilberforce had been placed by the Lord in a, uh, a vital position, because at this point, Wilberforce was uh, a close friend of a young man who was soon to become Prime Minister, William Pitt, That's right. who he'd met at Cambridge and they'd become friends. Uh, he had been elected to office in his, in his own uh, riding, first Hull, then York. And uh, there was an opportunity there to serve the God, to, to serve God in a remarkable way. And uh, Newton understood it; he grasped it, and he said, "You know, Wilberforce, is it not possible that the Lord has raised you up at this time for this purpose, mm -hmm. that you can serve God in this role?" And I think that's the first thing that I would say myself to a young person who's considering political office is this is an honorable service to the Lord and God can raise you up for that very purpose. The second thing I would say though is don't sell your soul right. to the um, uh, underlying religious principles of liberal democracy. Right. Uh, don't um, lose as you get uh, uh, um, into a position of authority and uh, an office there in the public legal space don't get drunk with uh, who you're um, brushing shoulders with, drunk on the sense of power and authority and so forth that, uh, you, that you, you now have in people's lives. Mm -hmm. You need to evaluate what it means biblically to really serve God in that office yeah. and, and to um, develop for yourself a Christian view of politics. Right. A Christian understanding of what it means to serve God in the uh, in the public space, to develop a distinctly Christian view of political life, and then to pursue that. And thirdly, I would say, be aware and be warned that this is an extremely difficult road for Christians in our cultural moment. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. to be faithful to Christ and to His Word in our current political climate is a major challenge. Now we have to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Look, the, the Daniel, uh, the prophet Daniel in Babylon occupied high political office. Yep. And somehow that man in the, in the midst of the, the, what was then the center of the pagan world, serving the most powerful king of the pagan world at that time, managed to serve Babylon faithfully, served that kingdom, but he did so honoring the Lord, and he did so under the ultimate authority and sovereignty of Jesus, and we, we, of Christ, we, we, of, of God. We see this, of course, very concretely when that edict comes down about not to pray to anyone but Nebuchadnezzar. Right. Um, and um, Daniel uh, rejects any such decree. And you know that there you we're given an insight into how Daniel occupied political office. He, it's just as Peter said to San, to the Sanhedrin, "Should I obey God or men?" So the challenge, the third thing that I would be saying is, don't forget that your you, that your task is to serve God first and then men, and uh, you you cannot reverse that order. That's right. I've had Christian politicians say to me, even in this country. Well, I want people to when I when 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 they've been asked, uh, 
So how are your colleagues responding to your Christian convictions? How, how are you finding bringing um, a distinctly Christian view to bear? And I'm told, well, I'm just sort of letting them to get to know me first. And then a bit later on, I'll start talking about those sorts of right. things. And yeah. it's a sure sign that that will never happen. Right. Yeah. That a distinctly Christian view will simply not emerge and that you, the person is prepared to interiorize and privatize radically yeah. their biblical convictions. This doesn't mean that the Christian politician is wandering around quoting the Bible at everybody. It means... Right. You're not the, not the tract-giving politician, exactly. necessarily. It doesn't mean you're stood at the door of the Houses of Commons giving out uh, yeah, gospel tracts yeah, before each sitting. It means that you are faithfully, in your service to Christ approaching the task itself and the role itself, the office itself, from a distinctly Christian standpoint and using all the wisdom one can muster in terms of a Christian world and life view, seeking to govern in terms of Christian principles. And that means supporting what is in line with that and opposing what isn't. Not rocket so, science, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's just another area where you need to be faithful and wise. Right, like, exactly. Uh, yeah, add it well, to the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, spe- speaking of that, one more thing. Uh, finally, how, uh, how do you and I, uh, as private citizens, as you know, fathers, as people who are not seeking elected office, how, how do we faithfully apply, faithfully uphold a biblical view of the state, of of biblical politics? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, uh, first of all, we do need to, um, as as fathers in in our own homes, um, and I think this is true for mums and dads in in all family homes, and I, I don't think there is an excuse today for Christians not to have a rudimentary grasp, first and foremost, of what the core key political issues are. Mm-hmm. That, that what, is the, what is the Christian mind as we look at the political task? Yeah. And it isn't, that doesn't require you to be a philosopher. It means uh, 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 using some appropriate resources to get, and I would start with the Ezra Institute, very good. Yeah, hold that mug up. Let right see. there. <laughs> good product placement. Start with the resources of the of the Ezra Institute. Maybe start by getting the, the, this new uh, monograph that's coming out in, in two parts yep. um, for government. Um, and, and get a rudimentary grasp of a Christian perspective on political life. We need that because if we don't have that ourselves, we're not going to be able to think through seriously our civic responsibility yep. and, and how we should vote how we should evaluate those things, how we should engage locally in, in, in local pol- political and civic life. We won't be able to pass it on to our children yeah. if we don't have any understanding of it. And then what are we doing? Well, then we're allowing whatever school our children are in to inform their sense of uh, civic life, their understanding of political life. And in the vast majority of cases, even in many Christian schools that are in, for example, in Ontario, doing the Ontario curriculum, civics is shot through with anti-Christian, radical, liberal, democratic notions. Maybe we can come come back to that. I'm not criticizing the notion that we vote 
de democracy in this sense for, for historically, actually, the term sure. is a very limited term. It just means the way in which a party is installed into government. Right. Once a once a, once a party's in government, or once a uh, once it's appoint, appointed uh, justices and so forth, their decisions aren't put to democratic votes and popular ballot. Right. So when we talk about democratic society uh, or democratic states, it's actually again a very reductionistic way of speaking about society yeah. and speaking about the state. This, the society isn't democratic. Western society society is made up of multiple different areas of uh, civic and social life that are not democratic. Your family is not a democracy. I presume that you and Rachel do not take a vote on whether your children are going to, you know, obey the house rules, right? right? Kids, you know, hands up who agrees with that. Yeah, who would like to go to bed now? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we have to, you know, be careful of these reductionistic ways of thinking about, you know, society and, 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 and government. Um, but I think the first thing we need to do is 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 be informed, and and it's it's really unacceptable the way that the vast majority of us today are just not informed mm -hmm. at all mm -hmm. on these things, and we don't think about them, we don't give them the time of day, and it's a very very dangerous moment culturally for us to have no idea what uh, the dominant political view of sovereignty is today. Uh, over against what the Christian view of sovereignty is today and what we should actually be pursuing. And in t uh, t to that end, as well as teaching our children and so forth, what we should be seeking to preserve uh, is actually what we've already discussed, which is a sense of the multifaceted nature of government and that the state needs to keep its proper place. I mean, that is the big battle of our age. Right. Uh, is the totalizing tendency, and there is a, we call this in politics, you know, totalitarianism, when the state seeks to swallow in sort of parts to whole relationship every aspect of society into itself, so that every portion of society, including your family, which would be somewhere at the bottom of that uh, totem pole yeah. hierarchy, um, is actually merely uh, a, a, another expression, or at least it's under the overarching um, authority and defining authority of the state. It's just a lesser, lower part of the body politic. Uh, and this, this is why the modern Western state over the last 50 years has presumed to redefine the family thinks it can redefine a pre-political institution. There you, have a, there you have an institution that is not, has never been thought of as being defined by politics, but is in fact politics is totally dependent on it. Yeah. And here you have the state presuming to redefine it, to seize control essentially of children. Uh, you have the state moving into medicine so that it wants to control medicine. You have the state taking over education so that it controls the education of our children. You have the state controlling welfare. I mean, those are just three or four areas immediately mm -hmm. where these are seen now as in parts to whole relationship. And the actual genuine differentiation and distinction of these other spheres of life uh, is overlooked or it's set aside um, in this drive for uh, the liberal democratic ideal, the liberal democratic utopia. 
you know, the basically the church um, as well being encroached upon. Um, the church and the family are seen, and this was certainly the language of John Dewey, as um, aristocratic institutions. They're not yeah. democratic. So yeah. why would we not want to abolish them and, and put something else in their place? Mm-hmm. So that's the big threat. And we in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own families, in our own teaching, in our own schools, in our own voting, in our own thinking about these issues, need to resist this totalitarian drift, this desire for one governmental institution to basically reduce all the others to parts of their whole. Right. And uh, that is what uh, I think fundamentally you can do and I can do and everyone, every Christian can do in how they speak about government, how they vote, how they interact with others, uh, how they engage in civic life um, by uh, keeping the civil government, the state, in its proper place. Right. Right, because this this is uh, just to to pick up on that. Uh, you went out on a high note for me personally. Like, this is essentially a category mistake mm-hmm. when we're talking about state education, yes. state welfare. Yeah, it like, is a category we, mistake. Yeah. We're so, like when when this co- when these commands come down uh, from the Lord or from Moses uh, through Moses. These are given to families. Families are told, parents are told, teach these things to your children. Mm-hmm. The, the saints at the different churches, Paul exhorts them several places to practice hospitality. Mm-hmm. So welfare, care for those who can't, uh, can't care for themselves, uh, yep. health, this kind of thing. These are, these are the responsibility of families, of churches. This is, but this is not something that the state is meant to be involved in. No, it's the people uh, neglect to recognize, because of course all these different uh, areas of authority, these spheres of authority of government that we've talked about with their different jurisdictions um, have a different character, they have a different nature. Mm -hmm. So obviously the government of the church is not identical, cannot be confused with the government of the family. You know, you don't govern your family, I don't govern my family, like it's a church. And in the same way, the church uh, is not a family. And the church cannot have this kind of paternalistic uh, approach to its members, um, as though we're reducing members of the congregation to children. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is is a different uh, law order, if you will, there that's at work in the life of the church. It's distinct from what's going on in the family, which is different from what's happening in the life of a school and so on. And the state, by its very nature, brings with it, uh, in, a, in, a, in a unique way, the way that none of these other spheres do, the power of the sword. That's right. So the church doesn't bear the sword. I mean, if you, you know, fall out of line in the life of a church and are, um, uh, what is the... Uh, New Testament say, you know, reject a divisive man on the third and second, second and third warning. Uh, or, you know, the discipline of the sexually immoral in the life of the church. Um, the church doesn't have sword power to then, uh, over those individuals, to then uh, uh, bring about some kind of civil penalty um, or to, uh, you know, execute uh, heretics. I mean, these were some of the mistakes that were made, of course, in the past. Um these these category er- er- errors uh so 
and in the same way, you know, in the, in the life of the family, we, we discipline our children. There is authority in the family, but it's not the same as the sword power of the state. Now, that was one of the differences that Christianity made in changing the Roman conception of the family, where the, the, the father, in many instances, literally had sword power, mm-hmm. life and death authority over his wife and children. Right. Yeah. So a Christian view rejects that. The state, uh, uh, the civil government brings with it sword power. It brings with it a unique form of coercion. Now, if you bring that, if you bring the state, as you say, into education in that kind of category area, you bring it into medicine, mm-hmm. you bring it into governed welfare, you bring it into what, uh, the, 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 the church, you bring it into wherever you bring it, yeah. then you are, then you need to be aware that you bring, the state brings with it its own nature. Yeah. Can't deny its own nature in these different contexts. So where you bring it, it will bring its own nature, which is to, to not simply give you advice. It's to coerce you. That's right. That's what the state does. And this is what we're seeing now in medicine, and we're seeing it in um, education, and we see it in welfare with confiscatory taxation and so forth, is that this, the civil government brings with it into those areas sword power. It brings with it coercion. And that, that is why a totalitarian parts the whole view of the state is so dangerous because it brings that kind of coercive authority into these areas and freedom is lost. Yeah. So in the name of freedom and liberal, they, it brings with it slavery. It brings with it uh, radical control. It brings with it um, tyranny. Whereas it's only the Christian view of government that liberates us. If the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed where God and his sovereign law and authority governs every area and keeps those areas um, under a strict discipline, under his sovereign authority, and prevents them from usurping the authority of one another. I mean, if the family usurps the authority of government, you have a mafia. That's right. If the church usurps the authority of the state or the family, you have an ecclesiocracy. So... Um, it's important that, in fact, the state's role in many respects, the part of civil government's role, one of its primary roles, is to make sure that these different spheres of life do not usurp and transgress the spheres of authority and jurisdiction that they actually have. Um, that, uh, you know, that, that, that schools or courts or um, uh, guilds or, you know, families or whatever it may be, uh, do not step beyond their authority. I mean, if a, if a father executes one of his children for disobedience, the state needs to step in. That's right. Yeah. Right? Um, if the church was to execute a heretic, you know, by popular consensus after a service, yeah. you know, the state has to step in. Yeah. It's role and there. And the state, ha- or sorry, the church has a responsibility to, to the state. You know, if, so if a, a member comes to you and confesses something that's not just sinful but criminal, mm-hmm. you you don't have that sort of confidentiality. Confidentiality doesn't extend to, no. to that circumstance. Yes, yeah, so, so these, I mean, you know, okay, so I, I guess we can't really avoid now just touching very briefly on the concept of sphere sovereignty sure. uh, that we've been sort of uh, alluding to, uh, where if you imagine spheres as circles, you know, family, church, state, just take three, they're touching, right? They're, right. they're, they're and... and uh, so they 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 don't overlap in jurisdiction, but they do touch, which means that they are interrelated, yep. 
And uh, whilst the state cannot usurp the family and vice versa, and the church, the, the state and vice versa, they do have mutual obligations to one another. And uh, th that would mean that both the family and the church in that direction um, are obligated to stand with the law and not with blood or with mere um, uh, uh, social loyalty within the life of a church. Mm -hmm. We're obligated to stand with the law where it's godly right. um, against um, crime, against criminality. So, um, and, and actually the Bible makes that very clear that, uh, that, the, that the family must be ready to testify against a delinquent son. Right. And the reason that's so important is that if, if we say, well, blood's thicker than water um, and blood is more important than the law... You cannot have a public legal order right. that is just. You cannot have a just state. Um, you can only have mafias develop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we see yeah, this even the, now. The real risky run is <clears throat> going against the family. Exactly. Yeah. And we see this even now in South America, yeah. uh, in places like Venezuela and other uh, um, uh, failed states where you've got cartels, often family-run cartels, mm -hmm. that are basically taking the place of government. So... Uh, but at the same time, the church, for example, is obligated to prophetically witness to the truth yes. to the state. Yes. Uh, so that where we see unjust laws, mm -hmm. where we see uh, tyranny, where we see an abuse of justice, we have the obligation as prophets, priests and kings in Jesus Christ to offer the prophetic witness of the church to all authority and power. We don't usurp that authority for ourselves or for the church. No. But we remind... But we remind the state... This is your rightful responsibility. This is your responsibility. And you're neglecting it. Yes, and you're, or, or you're usurping a responsibility here. Right. Uh, that that doesn't, doesn't belong to you. Yeah. So the state has obligations to these other spheres of life, and these other spheres have ob obligations to civil government. So they are touching, um, but their jurisdictions are distinct. Yeah. Perfect. And it's all... Under the righteous rule of Jesus the King. And that's the key factor here, is that uh, when we articulate a view like this that leads to societal freedom, because it recognizes differentiation, jurisdiction, and when, when those are differentiated properly, look at the freedom the family has. Mm -hmm. Look at the freedom the school has. Look at the freedom the guild has. Look at the freedom medicine has. Uh, look at the freedom the state has. Mm -hmm in its own sphere, not to be dominated by one particular church denomination, for example. Yes, the uh, market, the economy. Look at the freedom the market has. Exactly. All these different areas then enjoy freedom under Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean they enjoy radical autonomy. Right. It means they enjoy freedom under God, and that they are, they're obligated. The market is obligated to our higher authority. What does the Bible call that? The, the Old Testament tells us, just weights and measures. That's right. right. And it's God, God abhors unjust weights and measures the bible says so the market needs to be free but it must be just mm -hmm. and it's obligated to god the family needs to be free but it must be uh, under the authority of god it must be in terms of what god says the family is and must operate in those terms so this is the christian argument that freedom is under god if the sun sets you free you will be free indeed perfect that's just uh the best Christmas message. Amen. Joe, thanks a lot for uh, being here with us today. That's no, a great discussion. It's, uh, thanks for um, putting this together. Nope, glad we could do it.
in your office. <laughs> You're Thanks most for welcome. being here. <laughs> I was here anyway. Yeah, uh, I didn't have much else to do. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. If you did, it would mean a lot to us if you took a moment to subscribe, like, and share the podcast on social media and on your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.